0: Alright, Uh, well with that, we are going to go ahead and get started this morning. Um, So as most of you know, we're uh, getting into a a new book, so all the Sunday school classes are starting a new session today. Um, There's another Sunday school class uh, doing the same thing that we're doing, um, and that's the Faith Builders, and then there's a couple other things going on as well. Um, But uh, certainly glad that you're here, since it is a possibility that there is new faces here that are not... uh, haven't been part of the Bereans, thought we'd take just a second to review why we call ourselves Bereans. So this came from Acts chapter 17, where Paul and Silas are are moving around to uh, new churches. And in Acts chapter 10, it says that they enter Berea, or 17 verse 10, they enter Berea and go into the synagogue and begin teaching there in Berea. And then the next verse in verse 11 says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, that must be the steadfast class, I, I don't know. Um, for, <laughs> you can tell Jeff I said that. Um, for they, the Bereans, received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Right, so that, that's where we get the name Bereans from. And I want you to take two things out of, out of that verse and things that, that we hope to cultivate here in this class. And the first is that they were called noble because they were eager for the word. All right, so hopefully as you show up in the morning every Sunday, getting ready to come to class, you are eager to hear God's word. Now, some weeks you're going to be more eager than others because that's just the way life works. But we can actually pray for God to help us with our eagerness, right? If we're not in one of those moods where we're excited to be here and it's kind of a, a drudging day, we should be praying for God to help us with our eagerness. That is one of the things that makes the Bereans noble. And the other is they examined the word daily. Daily. All right, so they weren't just listening to Paul and Silas on Sabbath when they were in the synagogue, but they would go back and all through the week, it said they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul and Silas were saying matched up with what they knew to be true from the scriptures. They examined the word daily. That was a mark of Christian nobility. So hopefully, when you come on Sunday, it's not the only day that you're opening this book. That's better than nothing, but that's not the way that God desires your daily walk to go. So we hope that as we work through this class that as Bereans you'll come eager to hear and you'll be examining the word daily. In order to help you do that for the class, there are some handouts. I think they ended up on the snack table. Is that right? Yeah. That have the the passages we'll be going over every week uh, through the fall. So you can look ahead and see what particular passage or chapter we'll be studying on the upcoming Sunday. And that way you can read ahead and be familiar with the passage. I would encourage you to do that. That way you can come and... And maybe there's some things that you didn't quite understand, and you're waiting to hear them explained, or even if you have questions, right, hey, th- this didn't make sense to me, and, and you'll be ready to receive uh, in a more instructive manner. So uh, don't forget those at the end of class There. Uh, All right. With that, though, we are moving into a new study. So we're going to be going back and studying the history of Israel in the divided kingdom. Alright, so that comes primarily out of First and Second Kings. And uh, as we do that, I, I know some of you that didn't know that. Like I could see it on your faces. You're like, "Oh, Old Testament history. Good. M- maybe I should go to one of the other classes." Right? I I get it. Right? Sometimes that it makes us a little uh, a little uncomfortable. But uh, I'll be straight up honest with you. When I learned we were doing this, I, I had a little bit of that reaction. Yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be open. Uh, however, having spent the last several weeks getting ready for this series, I- that is no longer the case. I am. Extremely excited, and I know all the teachers say that, right? I get it. But, but I am, so hopefully you will be too. But as we open up and start in to look at the Book of Kings, we need some, some background. And really, first and second Kings are, is one book. It, it was divided up uh, initially, really, to help with the division of scrolls and things, and they didn't have you know, all the digital media where you could s- store as much as you wanted to. But it's really one single book. And so we're going to be looking at kind of the Book of Kings, writ large, meaning uh, both first and second Kings. So some basics as we look at that. The time frame goes from about 970 B.C. when Solomon assumes the throne in Israel. And then it runs all the way up to somewhere around 561 B.C. with both Judah and Israel in captivity. Uh, It doesn't go past that because the author does not give us any information about the return from exile. And certainly the way this book is written, had that already happened, he would have. So it ends somewhere while they're in exile and is written shortly thereafter, again, because we have no information Uh, about the return from exile. Now, those dates may not mean a whole lot to you, so let me put it in perspective. This roughly 400-year period encompasses most of the rest of your Old Testament. Almost all of the major and minor prophets wrote during this time period. So if we as Christians don't understand what's going on here, if we don't have the historical and theological background, then everything we read in this section of your Bible, is going to lose some context. So in Kings, we learn about Elijah, Elisha. Those are in the book itself. And then these, the following major and minor prophets wrote during that period. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Anybody recognize the ones that were left out? One of them. Somebody give me one that was left out. What's that? Haggai? Yep, that's one. Joel, that's two. And then the last two. What comes after Haggai? Here's a Bible quiz. Zechariah and Malachi. Those were written later. Only four of the major or minor prophets are not included in this period of history. So this is important for us to study. Uh, what about the author? Well, we don't know. The author doesn't identify himself. Uh, it's not pertinent to information he's getting across. Now, some have suggested that perhaps Jeremiah is the author. I'll give you a little homework assignment for one of those daily examining the word times you're going to have this week. Compare the last three verses of 2 Kings to the last three verses of Jeremiah, and then you'll have an idea of why some suggest that. But we don't know for sure. So author is unknown. What about the purpose? Now this is a history, but it's not a textbook. The purpose of the book of Kings is not just to give us all the the kings of Israel and Judah so we can try to memorize them and, and understand, you know, who followed whom That's not the purpose. It's history, but with a theological purpose. And we'll see that very clearly because some of the kings reigned for an extremely long time, and they're given just a short couple verses. And some of the kings really didn't reign for long at all, but they get a much larger treatise. The whole purpose of this book is to show us God moving in the chronicles of human history. It's to give us the, the reasons and the motives behind some of the things that happen. Now, think of how awesome that would be to have today, right? You're watching the news, whatever your favorite news source is, and as they describe something that's going on, a little banner rolls across the bottom and says, this happened because God was angry about this. Right? Or, hey, this happened because so-and-so was faithful. That would be great. We don't get that today, but we do get that looking back at the nation of Israel. God gives us this book so we can see what he was doing, what his intents were, what he was pleased with, and what he was displeased with as we move through human events. That's the purpose. What about themes? Well, there's two major themes, although they're really flip sides of the same coin. And we're going to see these over and over again throughout the entire book. And that's the people's disobedience and God's faithfulness and justice. Both of those will come up routinely. We'll see both of those in the passage this morning, and that will continue to to be the case. Now, as we look at the faithfulness of God and His justice, primarily the way that God's going to measure that and the way He's going to hold the people accountable is through covenants. Right? That was the way that, that He operated and, and really still does. And so, as we go through here, there's going to be references to several covenants, the, the most important, of course, being the Mosaic covenant. Kings is going to reference back to the Mosaic law all the time because that's what they had at the time, that was their governing directive. Again, another homework assignment for this week. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is where we have the Mosaic Covenant. Now, if you go back there, you'll see that God has Moses gather all the nation. All the people are gathered together. And through Moses, God says, look, when you get into the promised land, because they're not there yet, when you get in and take possession of it, if you follow me and are obedient, here's the ways that I'll bless you. And he gives them 14 verses of blessings, all of these wonderful things that will happen. And then he says, but you also need to understand, if you don't obey, and if you go and start worshiping the other pagan gods that exist in these lands, here's what's going to happen. And he gives them 54 verses of curses. Now, why would he give them 14 of blessings and 54 of curses? Just because our God's mean? And No. It's because, unfortunately, God knows which path they're going to take. And he needs them to be very clear on what the outcome is, so that when they happen, they understand the reason. These are some of the things that are listed in the Mosaic Covenant there in Deuteronomy 28. These are some of the consequences of disobedience and idolatry, and we're going to see those fulfilled in very dramatic ways as we walk through Kings. The fulfillment of God's warnings about disobedience and idolatry. So that's one of the main covenants. The second that's going to be extremely important is the Davidic Covenant. That one's found in 2 Samuel 7. For those that were here with us when we studied Uh, David, and and even when we talked about the life of Solomon, this came up. That's where God speaks to David and promises to give him the kingdom and that he'll have a man on the throne. Those are the two primary covenants. Now, God will make smaller personal covenants with other people that we'll see as we go throughout. The first one we'll encounter is the covenant with Solomon. If you guys remember that, we we studied that as we studied through his life. That was in 1 Kings 9, and we'll see that reference this morning. And so there are other smaller ones, but the two primary being the Davidic or the Mosaic and the Davidic. Now, even in Solomon's, God gave Solomon the same thing. He said, look, if you follow me and and are focused in your worship, here's the ways that I'll bless you. But if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And then God gets very specific with Solomon. He said, if you end up straying into idolatry, your people are going to end up in exile and I'm going to destroy the temple that you just dedicated God wants us to understand the consequences. So we've seen the basics and, and the themes. One more thing I want to point out as we, as we move forward, the connection to the New Testament. All right, sometimes in the Old Testament, people find it hard to go, okay, well, what does that have to do with you know, grace and Jesus? Right? Where, how do the two connect? There are innumerable threads throughout Kings to the New Testament. And hopefully you'll, you'll be very familiar with those as we move through. But just a couple of them here. The first is the institution of the kingship. Now you might say, well, really, that that started with Saul, right? You know, Saul, David, and then Solomon. Yes. But we're going to see God interact with the kings in very direct ways here and get very specific on this was good and this was not. That kingship, of course, has a direct thread to the New Testament. We all just finished studying Mark not that long ago, and and in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus comes on the scene, the first thing it says about his ministry is he came preaching what? The kingdom of God. Of course, we know ultimately who the king is. So the institution of the kingship here sets up something that God will reference and use to teach the people when Christ comes. The second is the roles of prophet, priest, and king. We're going to see those interact. We've seen that a little bit already, right? Prophets like Samuel and Nathan interacting with David, and we're going to see another prophet come on the scene here with Solomon today. So those are going to interact. You have the kings governing. You have the prophets giving the instructions of God to the people, and you have the priests making sure that the relationship between the people and God is kept pure. And, of course, as we fast forward to the New Testament, all three of those roles will be combined into one man. But we see those roles first exercised here. I said one of the themes was God's faithfulness and justice, and we're going to see that his justice is perfect even when he chooses to delay it, which he does. And you and I ought to be extremely grateful for that. But he delays his justice we know from 2 Peter, we just finished studying that, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why it's delayed. And then finally, at the end of Kings, the people are in exile, waiting for some kind of just and capable king to rescue them. Well, it's not going to happen then, but we know that that's exactly the same situation that you and I are in. We're in exile. We're told that our home is not here. And we're still waiting for the king, but he's coming. So all of these are the background of the book of Kings. Hopefully that gives you a little taste of the importance of this book, what we're going to learn through it, and how it connects to everything we see in the New Testament. So with that, we've got to get started. right? So open up to 1 Kings 11. You may be like, well, 11, that's not much of a start. What happened to the first 10 chapters? Well, the first 10 chapters, if you remember, for those who are here, we studied during the life of Solomon. That's the end of the United Kingdom, because it was all still happy during Solomon's reign until the end. So just by way of quick review for what we saw there, Solomon, early in his reign, early in his kingship, was fully committed to God. He was 100% on board with single-minded focus of worshiping the God of Israel. They build the temple. This was a huge day in the nation. They'd been waiting for this since they were wandering in the desert. They get the temple built. There's a huge nationwide dedication ceremony. If you remember that, we studied that in 1 Kings chapter 8. And then during that dedication ceremony, Solomon urges the people to follow their God with wholehearted devotion. Let me read from 1 Kings 8, 57 to 58. So this is Solomon praying as he dedicates the temple. He says, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. Then, In verse 61, he says this. Let your heart, therefore, talking to the people, let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. So that's where we ended the first 10 chapters. The temple's been dedicated The nation is prosperous through the wisdom that God granted Solomon. The nation has risen to levels of influence and power in the region that they had never had before and never will have again until the end. But things change. That's not going to be the way that we see things going forward as we begin to study the divided kingdom. And we're going to see this play out in two proclamations that God's going to make in our passage today. One to Solomon and one to Jeroboam. So, let's begin reading in in verse 9, and as we go through the passage today, you're going to see that the primary focus in this history with theological intent, the primary focus in this passage is that allowing anything to usurp God's sole place as our singular focus of worship results in discipline, but God remains faithful. 1 Kings 11, verse 9. Now, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom." But I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. God's proclamation to Solomon here in the beginning of our passage. So what happened there? Everything was looking good up through chapter 10. We hit chapter 11 in verse 9. It says, now God was angry with Solomon. Whoa, something, the train jumped the tracks somewhere. Well, if you'll look quickly back at chapter 11, verse 3, here we have part of the explanation. Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now you might have caught those emphases I was putting. <laughs> All right, So we see that somewhere between chapter 10 and where we arrive in chapter 11, Solomon has expanded his his harem of wives, princesses, and concubines. And as an outcome of that, his heart has veered away from the single-minded focus that it had early in his, in his kingship. And we need to be careful that we understand why God's anger is present in verse 9. It's not primarily the thousand wives and concubines. Now, don't get me wrong. That was bad, and God hated it. Right, in fact, there was a particular rule that God had put in place before the people ever entered the promised land. Again, back to Deuteronomy God gives the people some instructions for the king. He says, you're going to go into the land and ask for a king. It would be better if you didn't have one, but you're going to ask. I'm going to give him to you. Here are some things that are going to come about as, as a result of that, and here are some guidelines for the king. Deuteronomy 17, 17. The king shall not multiply wives for himself, get this, or else his heart will turn away. 250 years before Solomon, God says, if the king allows... A multiplicity of wives, they're going to turn his heart away from me. We fast forward almost three centuries, Solomon has a thousand wives, and what happens? His heart turns away. That's the primary issue God has with Solomon. Yes, the thousand wives was wrong. But that compromise in that law and not following God's statute led to an even worse issue, which was that his heart was no longer wholly focused on worshiping God. That's the primary reason that God is angry. Verse 9, now the Lord was angry with Solomon, not because he had a thousand wives, because his heart was turned away. The issue was idolatry. The means of his divided heart, in his case, was his many wives. There are other ways to end up down that path, but for Solomon, this was the path. He compromised on God's statute of having only one wife, and that resulted in his heart being divided. Now, Solomon didn't quit worshiping the God of Israel. They had built this temple. The temple sacrifices continued. He continued the the feasts that God commanded three times a year. All of that continued. He continued to worship God. The problem was his heart was split, and God was not the only focus. We can see that in a very graphical way by his construction projects. He had built the temple. That was the only temple in Jerusalem initially, but 1 Kings 11.7 says, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and a temple for Malek, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. So initially, Solomon had one temple. This is it. This is where the one and only God lives. And later in his life, now he's got, oh, there's one to Yahweh, there's one to Malek, there's one to Chemosh, there's one to Ashtoreth. And Solomon allowed worship to all of them. His heart was split. Now, God had appeared to Solomon, right? The author reminds us of that in verse 9. It said his heart turned away from the God who had appeared to him twice. Why does he bring that up? Because God didn't just speak to Solomon through prophets. He did, but not only. He appeared to Solomon personally twice. Once, you know the story, when God said, Solomon, choose whatever you want, and Solomon chooses wisdom. That was the beginning of his rise. And once, after the dedication of the temple, and after the temple prayer was given, that great prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8 that we studied that was such a, a focused prayer of humility and obedience, after that, God appears to Solomon in 1 Kings 9. If you want to turn back a page, you can. You don't have to. 1 Kings 9, verses 6, God does the same thing. Like I mentioned a moment ago, he warns Solomon, and he says, But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I've set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, exile, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Destruction of the temple. This wasn't just given to Solomon through a prophet. God appeared to him personally and said, look, you need to get this. This is important. And yet Solomon still compromised and allowed his heart to be diverted. So there's the issue of the divided heart. That's the problem. That's the reason God is angry and is about to dispense justice. So that's what we see next, the divine response. Now this time as God comes to talk to Solomon, you'll notice it doesn't say God appeared. It uses the much more common God said. So this was likely through a prophet. At this point, God has said, look, I I told you this personally once. We're not going down that road again. But he does give instructions to Solomon, and he says... Because you've done this, because you've allowed, not only allowed, but encouraged the people to worship other false gods besides me, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hand. Verse 11. Now that, that verb, tear, is an active, emphatic verb. Right? If we wanted to translate that into today's lingo, God says, Solomon, I am going to rip the kingdom away from you. He says this is not going to be a nice, peaceful transition of power. You're not just going to pass it on to your son or even someone else. There's going to be no orderly progression to this. It's going to be messy, chaotic, ugly, and it's going to leave some scars. I'm going to rip it out of your hand. God's serious about this. That's the sentence. He says, Solomon, I'm going I'm to split this thing, and it's going to be messy. Then he says, I'm going to give it to your servant. As if, as if that's not bad enough to add insult to injury. God says, not only am I going to rip it away from you, I'm not even going to give it to someone that you might think at least has some partial claim. It's not going to be one of your many sons. It's not going to be a well-known house in Israel. I'm going to give it to a servant. like the way Matthew Henry explains this. He said, Solomon had given God's glory to the creature by worshiping idols. Therefore, God would give Solomon's crown to his servant. He's showing Solomon just exactly what he had done by allowing his heart to be divided. So there's the sentence. The next thing we see is God proclaiming his faithfulness. I told you this was going to be a theme throughout the book. We see it first here. Right, God says, hey, I'm going to do this. However, there are some limitations I'm going to impose upon myself as I dispense this sentence. The first one we see there in verse 12, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days. He says, Solomon, I'm not going to do this till you're dead. This is going to happen, but I'm going to let you continue to reign until your time here." is over. Now, why would he do this? If it's this serious, why would God say, I'm going to wait until you're done being king? Well, again, it's God's promise. We hearken back to the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel 7, I told you that's where we find the Davidic covenant. God had said this to David, 2 Samuel 7, 12, When your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for, not, for my name. So he's talking about Solomon. Solomon is the one that built the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Some people would ascribe that to Jesus, but listen to the next phrase. When he commits iniquity, not talking about Christ here, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. God promised to David, I'm going to give your son the kingdom, and it will be his, his whole life. I'm not going to take it away from him like I did from Saul. So God here says, okay, Saul, now because of your idolatry, I'm taking the kingdom away, but I made a promise to your father, and I'm going to keep it. So the first evidence of God's faithfulness in this was his delayed fulfillment. The second is the gift of a remnant. We see that in verse 13. He says, all right, I'm going to take it away, but not all of it. I'm going to leave one tribe for your son. The majority of the nation is going to go to a servant, but I'm going to give your son one tribe. Now, why would he do this? Again, if, if this is punishment for Saul's idolatry and for leading the entire country into idolatry, why leave him anything? Well, God gives us two reasons right there in verse 13. He says, for the sake of my servant David... Again, he'd made a promise to David in that covenant, and he was going to keep it. And for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. God also made a promise about where he would put his name. Again, back in Deuteronomy, before the Israelites ever entered the promised land, God was describing what was going to happen. And in Deuteronomy 12.5, he says this, you shall, seek your, you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, And there you shall come. He said, Once we get in the nation, I'm going to choose one spot, and that's going to be the primary place that my presence dwells and the place that I'm going to interact with you. And so you're going to go there to worship. They didn't know where that would be yet, but he made them a promise. Then, of course, we know that ended up being Jerusalem. We saw that fulfilled in 1 Kings 9, verse 3. After that dedication, the Lord said to Solomon, I've heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So God had made a promise to remain faithful to Jerusalem as well as to David. So he says, I'm going to leave a remnant to your son, Solomon, because I'm going to keep my promises. So if this is the, the issue of God's faithfulness, I, I like the way that, that Kyle and Dielich put it. He says, in this double limitation of the threatened forfeiture of the kingdom, there is clearly manifested the goodness of God, not, however, with reference to Solomon, who had forfeited the divine mercy through his idolatry, but in order that the promises made to David and the choice of Jerusalem might stand immovably as an act of grace which no sin of men could overturn. God says, even when you mess up and sin, you still can't break my promises, and I won't either. So, what's the application for us? What what do we get out of this as we look at this Old Testament history? Well, the the first is this. Everyone is subject to idolatry. If Solomon, the wisest man on earth, who had had a personal vision from God twice, could be steered little bit by little bit via a compromise in God's commandments to a point where he was worshiping false gods that included child sacrifice— If Solomon is vulnerable to that, then you better bet we are. None of us is above idolatry. We don't like to think of it that way. Like Solomon, most of us in this room will probably not walk away from God altogether and say, never mind, I don't want anything to do with God, I'm going to worship this tree. We're we're probably not going to do that. But Solomon didn't either. What he did was allow compromise with God's commandments to allow other things to creep into his worship so that when he worshipped, it wasn't just God. He worshipped God and Moloch and Ashtoreth and Chemosh. He worshipped lots of things. But there's only one thing in the created universe worthy of worship. That's our God. And he won't stand for anything less than himself to be worshipped. So what does that look like for us? What are some of the things that end up being our idols? Well, there's some things that we're aware of. Right, there are things that you and I know we have to be careful about not allowing to become too high of a priority in our life. Things like money, power, influence, pride, reputation, our job. Right, We we get these things. We know we have to look out for those. We know they can sort of take priority in our lives, and we know we need to be careful not to. But I think the harder ones are the things that are good things. Even things that are that are biblical, that God wants us to focus on, can become idols if we're not careful. Things like family. Family is a God-ordained institution with God-ordained mandates. There are things we are required to do by God to raise a family in the right way, and he wants us to be diligent in those. However, if looking after our family takes the place of God in our primary focus of worship, meaning every decision we make is based on what we think affects the family most. All of our financial decisions, all of our emotions are banked on on how things in our family are going. Our sense of self-worth and pride comes from what our family looks like. When those things happen, that becomes an idol that we worship. And something that God made to be good suddenly becomes detestable. This can happen with with almost anything, we see this example of family in Matthew 10, 37. Jesus himself says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Those are, those are deep words. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, family's good. But Jesus is saying, don't let it take the place of me. Ministry can happen. You guys probably know a a pastor or a missionary or someone who got burnt out because they let their ministry become too much of a focus. And instead of serving God through their ministry, their entire person and being and sense of worth becomes the ministry, and God himself is sort of left for the leftovers. Those of you that were at the Q&A with the missionaries we had last week, it was one of the things that was said there. One of them said, I think the biggest threat to us on the mission field is not looking after our own personal spiritual health. Even ministry can be an idol. So the question is, what have each one of us let creep onto our list of things to worship? That's something that we should all give thought to. What have we allowed to become something we worship in addition to God? Because there should only be one thing on that list. Secondly, though, God will discipline if this happens, because he's a loving father. He will discipline, but he will keep his promises. There are promises all throughout this book that are for your good and my good. If we are in Christ, God does not forget those when he disciplines. He will be faithful to keep his promises to you and I, despite us needing discipline to recorrect and refocus our worship. That should bring us hope and comfort. That's a good thing. Next, the second of God's proclamations is he explains what's happening here. He's talked to Solomon and he said, "Look, Solomon, I'm going to give most of your kingdom to a servant." Now, he didn't tell Solomon who that was. He just said, "I'm going to choose one. I'm going to give him most of your kingdom." Well, now we're we're going to move ahead in the narrative to verse 26, and and God's going to reveal that adversary. He's going to reveal who he's going to choose. Now, in verses 14 and 23, that section that we're skipping over, quickly, God raises up two external adversaries as well. He raises up one from Edom in the south, Hadad. And in verse 23, he raises up Reason from Damascus in the north. So Solomon finds himself in a position where his entire reign has been one of peace. There hasn't been a war or a conflict since he took the crown. And suddenly... We know from the theological history that because of his idolatry, now he's, he's kind of surrounded externally. He's got an enemy to the north, he's got an enemy to the south, and then we find an internal enemy in Jeroboam. Verse 26, we'll read 26 through 28. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat an Ephraimite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. So now there's external, here's the internal. Now, this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now, the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So, Jeroboam, who who is this guy? Well, we know he was a servant in the palace. That's about all we know of his background, other than the fact that he comes from the half-tribe of Ephraim. That makes him from the house of Joseph. And for some reason, he rebels. Now, the reason we're given here is an interesting one. We're told the reason that he rebelled against Solomon was because Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach in the wall. So Solomon is, is building up Jerusalem. He's expanding it. Now, the millow was a terraced structure. Israel or Jerusalem is built on hills, and it was a terraced structure in one of the hills of Jerusalem that allowed them to build on it and use the slope. You can still see pieces of it in Jerusalem today. This is part of one of the terraces in Jerusalem, this would have been part of the Millo. So Solomon is doing this construction project. And when it says he closed up the breach of the wall of his father David, it doesn't mean the wall had broken and he was repairing it, because again, there had been no wars during Solomon's time. What he was doing was expanding the wall and building more of it to surround more of Jerusalem. So the question is, why, does, why do construction projects, which seem like a good idea, cause Jeroboam to rebel? Well, in verse 28, we're told that Jeroboam was such a good worker that he caught Solomon's attention, and Solomon put him in charge of the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So that was the tribe that Jeroboam came from. And apparently Solomon was using Israelite forced labor in order to build these construction projects. Now this wasn't new. Solomon had done this before when they were building the temple. In 1 Kings 4:5, it says, but now, oh, I'm sorry, in uh, 1 Kings 5.13. Now King Solomon levied forced laborers from all Israel. And the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. That's when they were gathering raw materials to build the temple. So this is something that Solomon has done before, and apparently Jeroboam was put in charge of of the house of Joseph's forced labor. And something about that, whether just the fact that they had to do it, or maybe the conditions under which they worked, or how much they were taxed to fund it, something about that, that construction project and the way that the people from his tribe were used angered Jeroboam. So he rebels against the king. Now, one of the things that, uh, that we need to, to see from that comes in the next part, where God reveals the characteristics he desires, right? So we now have Jeroboam, an internal adversary to Solomon, and we're going to see that, that God now speaks to Jeroboam like he did to Solomon. So if you would, we'll continue in verse 29. It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes." But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. So we see essentially the same prediction here to Jeroboam coming through the prophet Ahijah. So the prophet comes on the scene and does what prophets do. He's there to explain God's intentions to the people. And as is often the case with prophets, He comes with a sign, something visible and tangible to help the people in his target audience understand God's intentions. In this case, his target audience was an audience of one. We're told, unlike many prophets who speak to the people in large, Ahijah found Jeroboam when he was by himself. And he gives him this sign. He tears up his cloak into 12 pieces, easily identifiable to Jeroboam as the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, you take 10 because God's going to make you king over 10 tribes. Same thing we we saw with Solomon. Now, interestingly, in verse 34, or verse 33, God gives Jeroboam the reason that he's getting 10 tribes. Now, let me just make a comment on the math for a section, because I know some of you that the math is, is making your head a little wonky, right? He rips it up into 12 pieces. He says, Jeroboam, you get 10. I'm giving one to Solomon's son. And then they move on. You're like, whoa, 10 plus 1 is not 12. right?" So here's way that works we're going to learn that the one tribe that was left to solomon's line was the tribe of judah judah was huge it was powerful the other tribe that we learned that's actually part of the southern kingdom is benjamin benjamin was tiny it was small there wasn't many people in it It wasn't that powerful so they lump benjamin in with judah and it's considered one tribe but there's the 12 i know it's bothering some of you just had to just had to get that out there all right so i my dad's head was like exploding um So in verse 33, Jeroboam is given the reasons, right? God wants him to know, why am I doing this? Now, in Solomon's case, it makes sense because it was Solomon's problem, right? God said, look, your idolatry and the resulting idolatry of the nation, I'm punishing that. It's personal. But Jeroboam wasn't the one that led the nation into idolatry. So why is God bothering to explain himself here? Two reasons. One, he wants Jeroboam to understand, look, if I ripped the kingdom out of Solomon's hand because of idolatry, I'll do the same for you. This is important to me. The second reason, though, is that he wants Jeroboam to understand that this is not because of you. I'm not giving you ten tribes because I think you're going to be a spectacular king. I look throughout all Israel, and you're hardworking, and your superior knowledge and intellect, and, you know, your character are such that, I, that you're the man. No, he says the reason you're getting it is because there's bad things happening, and I can't let that continue. But it has nothing to do with you. He wants Jeroboam to understand that. You're not getting the kingship because you're such a great candidate. That's not why. That's important for Jeroboam to understand. But the biggest difference here, I think, between the two stories, between the way God tells it to Solomon and the way God tells it to Jeroboam, comes in verse 34. Look at that again. God says to Jeroboam, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of, and look how God addresses David here. For the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. Now, God tells us why he kept covenant with David. You notice when he talked to Solomon, he just said, because of your father, David. He didn't need to explain this, because Solomon knew what kind of a man his father was. But to Jeroboam, he says, look, I need you to understand the characteristics that I'm looking for, for you to be an obedient servant and to be a successful king. And, And here they are, there's three of them that he gives him when he refers to David. The first is, he says, my servant David. Again, not referring to Solomon when he says, my father David, but my servant David. Now David, despite all his faults, and he had many, David had a servant's heart. He was singularly focused on worshiping God. Even when he strayed well off the path and became a murderer and an adulterer, David never committed idolatry. God was his sole source of worship throughout his entire kingship. And that's why he's known by God as a man after my own heart. That's the difference in David and Solomon. David sinned egregiously, but he never left God as the sole focus of his worship. Because he was a servant. A servant can only have one master. You don't get more than that. David understood that. God says, the characteristic I want to see out of you to follow me successfully is a servant's heart. The second thing he says is, my servant David, whom I chose. Now here we have God's sovereign hand reaching in and saying, I'm going to do some things regardless of human response, be that obedient or disobedient, be that righteous or sinful, there are some things that I'm going to do because I want to do them. And I get that prerogative. He said, you need to understand that, that I'm the sovereign God and you're not. He said, I need you to understand and recognize that, that I am sovereign, not you, even though I'm going to make you a king. And the third thing, he says, is my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. All right, what does God want to see in addition to those two things? Obedience. He says, I want to see someone who is obeying my commandments and my statutes. Now, remember, the whole problem with Solomon is he deviated in, in one area, and that caused a much larger area down the road. David, despite his sins, had a habitual practice of obeying God's laws. Perfectly? No. But as Tom would say, the regular pattern of his life was obedience to God's commandments. And that kept him from idolatry the way that Solomon strayed. These are important things. That, that obedience kept David from compromising. It kept his worship list down to a single solitary item. Nothing else crept its way in to his to worship list. We see that in Psalm 1 and 2, or Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. David writing says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and, like a Berean, On his law, he meditates day and night, daily examining the word. So there's the characteristics that God desires for someone to successfully follow him, given to Jeroboam. Now, right after that, God reveals his conditional offer to Jeroboam. Verse 37, he says, I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, and by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So he says, okay, Jeroboam, here's the offer. I just told you why I'm taking the kingdom from Solomon. I told you how it's going to play out and what the math's going to look like. And here's what I'm offering you. And in this conditional offer to Jeroboam, we see the exact three characteristics that God just explained about why he was keeping covenant with David. Right, All three, different order, but it's the exact same three. The first thing we see in 37, God says, I will take you and you shall reign. God says, look, I'm choosing you. It's my choice. Again, not because of you, because of me. Just like he said, my, my servant David, whom I chose, he tells Jeroboam, I chose you. Then he says in verse 38, then it will be that if, ooh, man, there's a powerful word right there. That one word can change the course of nations, because it does. God says, then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways. What's God saying there? Saying that, that, that verb, to listen, means to put yourself under me. Right? To, to look at me for leadership and guidance not figure it out on your own, to submit yourself to my leadership, then you'll do well. Right? What's, what's God getting at there? Well, if you listen to me, that's the servant's heart. right? That's the same thing he said about David. David was a servant because he put himself underneath my leadership and focused on me to direct him. He said, Jeroboam, you have to do the same thing. You need to put yourself under my rulership, be focused on me so you can listen and do what I'm telling you to do. Same thing. And then finally, the end of verse 38, we see the obedience. So if you listen, if you're a servant, and you do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments. God says, I kept covenant with David because of these three characteristics. And Jeroboam, I have an offer for you, but it involves these three characteristics. This is what I want to see out of you. And if you do, man, the payoff is huge. Verse 38c, if you do this, Jeroboam, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David. Do you understand what God's promising? God promised David a lasting kingdom and that he would have someone on the throne forever. And he's saying, Jeroboam, if you will follow this outline I just gave you, we'll have two of those godly kingdoms. I'll give you a family dynasty the same way I promised to David, and we'll have two godly kingdoms running in parallel forever. I mean, the the whole history of the nation of Israel would have looked starkly different. That's an enormous payoff. If only Jeroboam had been a little bit of a different man. But we'll see that like Solomon, he allowed his worship to be divided. So there was the offer, and finally, we see in verse 39 and 40, uh, a stark contrast between God's faithfulness and man's foolishness. It's sort of a, a whole summary of what we've seen in the entire passage. Verse 39, thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always, God says. He says, this is why I'm doing this. I'm, I'm ripping it out of Solomon's hand. I'm leaving him a little because of a promise, but, but this is definitely an affliction. It's discipline for the house of David, but it won't always be that way. I love that. Right? It's like a parent telling you know, their, their two kids, hey, uh, young son, I just sent your older brother to his room for misbehavior you've kind of got run of the house for now but but look he's coming out in a little bit you may want to be careful how you treat his stuff (laughs) and for the older brother look you got sent to your room but obviously we're not going to leave you there forever you get to come out in a little bit that's what he's saying this of course is because of that davidic covenant god promised david to have a man on the throne forever not unbroken but at some point there will be someone who takes the throne and keeps it forever we know he's looking forward to Christ. In Ezekiel thirty-seven, there's a, a an amazing passage. Well, there's a bunch of them. I'll just read this one to you, but Ezekiel is about three hundred and fifty years later than, than when we're studying now. He's he's down the road when they're in exile. And speaking through Ezekiel, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-one says this Say to the people, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, return from exile. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. Now understand, this is way after David died. God tells the people, I'm going to bring you all back from exile, going to put you back where you belong, and David's going to reign over you as king. That's the Davidic covenant. That's Christ coming to reign as a descendant of David, and when he starts to reign, it doesn't end. It's a, a prophecy that has near-term fulfillment in the return of the Jews from exile and long-term fulfillment in the kingship of Christ. There are similar passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. They all prophesy the return from exile and then shoot forward to a descendant of David sitting on the throne. It's an amazing prophecy of, of God. He gives hope. One commentator says, verse 39 states this principle in a nutshell. Affliction but not abandonment. The rays of hope flicker from behind the clouds of judgment. God is dispensing discipline, but he says, look, there's hope. Hold on. And then in verse 40, we have the foolishness of, of man. Again, a, a common theme. It says, Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Both of these men are making foolish decisions here. Remember that Jeroboam was contacted by Ahijah in, in secret. It was just the two of them. And yet somehow, even though Jeroboam was told, look, you're not getting the kingdom till Solomon's dead, he goes out and does something that brings his rebellion to Solomon's notice. He starts shouting from the rooftops, I'm going to be king. Or, you know, maybe it was even a, a military coup. He thinks, well, I know the prophet said I have to wait till Solomon's dead, but I'm going to see if I can speed it up. Right, Whatever it was he did, it was stupid. <laughs> he was told, you got to wait, and he didn't. So what happens? Solomon tries to kill him. Right now he's got a death threat. And Solomon's being foolish because he was told, look, I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hand and give it to your servant. And then suddenly there's this servant that's rising up, rebelling against him, and the wisest man on earth, who was given an entire kingdom and the most prosperous nation in that region of the planet, through the grace of God, says, I can probably outmaneuver God. I'll just kill Jeroboam. Oh, how the wise have fallen. We are not inherently wise creatures, friends. The only wisdom we have comes from above, and if we are not singularly focused, we have none. So what's the application for us? Well, God has chosen you in his sovereignty if you were in Christ this morning. Just like Jeroboam, it had nothing to do with you. It wasn't because your character was superior or your knowledge was superior. God chose you because he chose you, because he gets that prerogative. And yet, there are still two characteristics left for us, and that is to give him our undivided worship, to have a servant's heart, just like David did. God says, I'll choose you, but here's what I expect from you. Undivided worship. Not split between me and Chemosh and and Ashtoreth and all the other things those might represent in our lives, but me and me alone. And I expect obedience. Because if you violate one commandment that may not seem like a big deal, it can lead, in the end, to a very big deal. This is what God expects from us. If you are a Christian this morning, then, then these are areas for you to think about and focus on. It's important to God that you have nothing on your to-worship list other than him. We need to continually evaluate what has made its way onto our list, maybe even without us recognizing it. But even if we have, he'll bring us back to correction, and it might be uncomfortable, but he will maintain his promises to care for you and complete you between now and, and then when eventually when Christ comes. If you're not a Christian this morning, there is yet hope. The consequences are dire for a divided heart, and if you're not in Christ, that's where you are. But God has offered salvation. Your response is to say, yeah, I I need it, and I'll submit myself to you with a servant's heart and in obedience. Let these things be what we think about this week and and this morning as, as we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being the kind of God that you are. A God that warns us ahead of time of of what your intentions are. A God that offers blessings when we seek you out with a whole and undivided heart. And we even thank you for being a just God who disciplines when we allow that heart to be divided. Because that is ultimately for our good. God, I pray that you would work in each of us this week as we move forward. And you would bring to our minds those things that we may have elevated to a place of worship and put on a pedestal that should have only you in residence there. I thank you that, that you offer us forgiveness through Christ, through his perfect life, his undivided heart on our behalf. And I pray that we would take seriously the need to maintain a single-minded focus in our worship. I pray that you would do that with us this morning as we go into service or or wherever our paths lead us on this Lord's Day, but that that we would maintain our, our look to you and to you alone. We ask these things in Jesus' name.